Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their amazing stories of experience, strength, and hope. My guest on today's show, Patrice T., has experienced the disease of alcoholism and the gifts of sobriety, both as a child of an alcoholic and later as the alcoholic herself. At one point, her own alcoholism overlapped her father's struggle with the disease until she, too, found sobriety. Her story is fraught with the strife of her father's alcoholism through her early childhood and adolescence. Like many of us, she started drinking as a teenager, despite what she saw in her own home. Drinking brought both relief and release to Patrice's increasingly chaotic life. By the time she was practicing nursing in her early 20s, her alcohol use had morphed from an enjoyable pastime to a daily and seemingly unbreakable habit. By this time, Patrice's father had entered the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. While her father's life in AA was steadily improving, Patrice's life was rapidly deteriorating. And even though she knew her father's life was getting better, and he sometimes subtly shared his positivity about AA, Patrice simply wasn't ready to quit. It took hitting bottom for her to admit she was licked. She was finally ready to stop drinking and joined AA. That was 43 years ago. Over the four decades, she has enjoyed sharing the blessings of a sober life with her father, who died with 32 years of sobriety through AA recovery. Patrice's sobriety is firmly rooted in the center of AA. Her involvement in meetings, sponsorship, and all varieties of service have led to a full and meaningful life. The grave challenges she has endured and overcome are strong testimony to the kind of healing found only in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Her willingness to carry the message and to reach out to other women speaks to the commitment she learned early and still practices to this day. I've gotten to know Patrice over the past few years and am most impressed with her approach to working the program. I think you'll find her tale of long-term sobriety to be both inspiring and enthralling. So, put the world on hold for the next hour and ten minutes while you enjoy this episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA sister, Patrice T. My name is Patrice. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Patrice. So glad to have you here on AA Recovery Interviews. Thank you. I'm so glad that you can do this today. I've enjoyed getting to know you over the last couple of years during the Zoom meetings, and I want to thank you for being so friendly and accepting and inviting to me when I first came into that meeting. And it's really good to see you today. You too. So I've heard you share in meetings, but I, I, I know you've got a lot of time, but I wasn't quite sure how long you've been sober and what your sobriety date is. Um, my sobriety date is January 9th, 1979. So I have 43 years. January seems to be a popular month for people to get sober. January is a big month for people. They hit bottom, but it takes them a week or two to come in. <laughs> yeah, it really does, doesn't it? Recruitment. It was. It, we call it recruitment month for AA. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. People doing their resolutions. I came in on the first, but it wasn't a resolution. It would just happen to work out that way. My last drunk was on New Year's Eve. So what was going on in early part of January of 1979 that made you want to go to AA? Well, I had been suffering from a eating disorder also mm -hmm. and in april of 78 i went to a overeaters anonymous meeting and i remember that summer 
feeling, that feeling of, okay, I think I can control and enjoy my drinking. <laughs> and in September, I remember saying to a friend of mine, I feel that dark cloud coming over me. And of course, she's not alcoholic. I've known her since I was seven. And she said, what are you talking about? And I just said, I just feel that dark cloud. And, you know, I just started to hit that bottom again. And um, I was arrested for drunk driving in October. Mm. And I was working as a nurse and doing private duty at the time. Mm. And I just felt like my life was falling apart. I became friends with a, a, a gal who lives in Boston and, and she would give me these um, self-help books mm -hmm. and feel good about yourself book. And I, I still have the, one of the books she gave me and she said, you're such a beautiful person, you know, uh, but I didn't feel that way at all. And I remember her saying to me, why don't you come to church? And I was raised Catholic and, you know, 12 years of Catholic training and, and, um, and I started going to church and, you know, she had been reading the Bible. She said, why don't you, you know, start reading the Bible? And I, I hit the spiritual bottom. Mm -hmm. I started re reading and I, I started praying and I started just feeling that hopelessness. And right before January 9th, on January 8th, I decided I'm going to go back to um, an OA meeting because I woke up that weekend and I thought, my life is never going to change. Mm -hmm. It's just going to continue going on this way. And I just didn't know how to do life. I didn't know how to function. I didn't know how to take care of myself. Simple things like uh, mm -hmm. having insurance, uh, doing things like a normal person would do, having a job that you stay at. Uh, I, I couldn't seem to stay at a job. And I, I just hit that spiritual bottom. I, I felt hopeless and helpless was that with your um the oa no it was both because i was going to be starting drunk driving school that week uh-huh and january 8th was a monday and i went to this meeting and, and it was a newcomers meeting they told me to get a big book and get a 12 and 12 and get mm -hmm. a directory and get a food plan and you know and find someone that you can call and i asked this girl can i call you and she said, yeah. And when I, she said, call me when you get home. Mm -hmm. And when I got home, I um, poured my Alma Den White Chevrolet and I lit my joint and I called her and I said, on this food plan, it says that you can't drink for 30 days, but you can have fruit in between meals. I'm wondering, instead of having fruit in between meals, can I drink? Can I have out, you know, wine at, <laughs> at night? And she said, are you an alcoholic? And I said, no, but my father is. He's sober in AA for about three and a half years. Mm. And, you know, we talked more. And she said, are you drinking right now? I said, yes. And then I finally told her that I'm going to drunk driving school the next day. And she said to me, why don't you meet me at an AA meeting tomorrow night, Tuesday night. It was a big meeting, young people's meeting in Los Angeles. And I remember going and it was huge meeting, you know, three, 400 people, mm -hmm. so many young people, so many good looking young people, happy. That's the thing that hit me because I had gone to meetings with my father when he got sober in 75 mm -hmm. because he asked me to. I thought it was because he wanted me to support him. 
I didn't know that he was trying to 12 step me. Uh-huh. And but I did go to this meeting and I did um, I, I saw people happy. And I just remember thinking, I I haven't really been happy. I've acted as if my whole life I've always tried to be something other than myself. And I acted as if my whole life and and I just cried during the whole thing. And, and above the podium in this church, they have this um, stained glass window and it says, God is love. Hmm. And I just remember uh, feeling at home. Feel, I wanted what these people had. I wasn't sure I was an alcoholic because I compared myself with my father. Mm-hmm. I was more of a periodic alcoholic, but... When I did my first step a few times in the first five years, there is no doubt that I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> now, did you identify with the eating addiction before you identified with the alcoholism and drug addiction? Yes. I've had other guests on the show who have had the eating addictions along with the alcoholism or drug addiction or whatever, and most of them were an outgrowth of something, the type of environment in which they were raised. How does your story factor into your becoming an alcoholic and having the problem with the eating addictions? Honestly, I, I think that I was born an alcoholic and an addict. You know, some of my siblings are not alcoholics and addicts. They may have suffered from the disease of alcoholism in our family because of my father, but they don't feel the way that I feel. And I have felt that way from early on in my childhood. You know, I don't feel like other people. I want to be like other people. I don't want to be like myself. Uh, Mm -hmm. I didn't fit in. I always try to fit in with people and... um, you know, I always sugar and and overeating was big. And it was when I was 13, that we went to a dance and my family of origin, my father was an alcoholic, bad Mm -hmm. alcoholic. And he had stopped drinking when I was about five. But I remember sitting on his lap and he was jumping me up and down. I must have been four or five years old. And and I said to him, Daddy, you're drunk. (laughs) And I remember looking at my mother and my mother just looked at me with like, oh, my God, you said the wrong thing. You know, why did you do that? And 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 that just, you know, stayed with me for many years that whatever I would say, it was the wrong thing. Hmm. I, I could never say the right thing. So did you have to tiptoe around that in the house? Absolutely. And then right at that point, my dad stopped drinking. And he's not sober in AA, but he stopped drinking for seven years. But he was sort of a rageaholic, and there was physical hitting. And so, you know, I loved him, but I was afraid of him. But at least we had some semblance of normalcy during those seven years. Where are you amongst your siblings? Do you have siblings? Yeah, I'm one of six. I'm third. And the first three were each a year apart. And then after me, there's five years and then 10 years, and then 16 years. So it's almost like there were two separate families because my brother and sister who are older than me, we remember growing up in New York City. You know, we we lived in Washington Heights and play at the park across the street. I can remember running around. and um, But then we moved to New Jersey, mm-hmm. you know, grew up in this small town mm-hmm. in New Jersey. You know, during that time, we had some semblance of, um, 
normal. We went to church as a family. Mm-hmm. We went, uh, took vacations as a family. Um, we sat down on Sunday dinner as a family. And all of a sudden, when I was about 11 or 12, my father started drinking. A lot of that stopped. You know, uh, we used to say the rosary on Sunday nights. I mean, we were, we were really Irish Catholic my mm-hmm. grandparents were all from Ireland, so we used to listen to the Irish music on Sunday nights from Ireland. But it seemed everything fell apart when my father started drinking. And, you know, we could hear the troubles. Uh, my mother complaining about his drinking and his gambling, running the numbers in New York. I, you know, I don't even know what that means, but it's running the numbers. Was he a rager before he started drinking? Well, he he started drinking when he was 11. And he stopped drinking when I was about four or five. Okay, so in the ensuing seven years, was he raging while he was not drinking? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was. I always remember uh, my sister and I were fighting over the pogo stick. And his solution was just to break the pogo stick over the sidewalk. Okay, no, now, no one, now no one has the pogo stick. <laughs> so... And even when I was very young, my father used to say when I was a baby, they would they used to have to protect me because my sister was a year and a few months older than me. And my brother was two years and a half older than me. And they just didn't like me. They weren't happy that I was there. And so my mother used to have to take me everywhere. And, and th- there's a part of me that always felt that, that I was never liked. My brother and sister never liked me. Mm-hmm. They did not want me to be there. And um, But my father's drinking was, you know, such a problem that he had to stop or he was just going to lose everything. And he started drinking when I was maybe 11 or 12. And I can remember, I remember he had had a back surgery and we went to go visit him. And he asked me to get something from the uh, bedside table, and I opened the drawer, and there was a bottle of whiskey in there. Hmm. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, this is bad. On top of everything he was getting for the pain and whatever else he was getting in the hospital, he was also drinking. Well, and he wasn't a big—he wasn't an addict. He wasn't a big pain pill person. He was he was a true alcoholic. Why not? He would say to me— Sometimes we'd go in the city to go to a meeting together whenever I would come home and he would say, you know, Pat, sometimes I look at the, those parks and I think, gee, it would be nice to be back with the winos. <laughs> <laughs> and he would just say sometimes, you know, there's a part of every alcoholic that thinks, you know. Um, there's that romantic Ernest Hemingway feeling, isn't there? Yeah, there is. There is. But, you know, those days are gone. Those days were gone and I knew it. I remember I went to meetings. First thing I heard, there were a few things that I heard in my first meeting. If you drank every day, then you need to go to a meeting every day. That was number one. Mm-hmm. Number two is take care of your alcoholism and everything else will take care of itself. Because when you come in, you're like, I'm a mess. I don't have a life. I'm working, but I'm not even a good nurse. I'm a piece of shit. Like you come in with all these problems and as newcomers do, but they told me to just take care of my alcoholism and all these problems would take care of itself. I didn't understand that at first. I do now. And it took me a while. But when I had 15 days, I went to the same meeting and we went out for coffee for fellowship. We used to call it Mm -hmm. uh, after the meeting. 
And I called him from the payphone in this diner. So it had to be 10, 11, 12, one o'clock in the morning, my dad's time. And I called him and I, and when I moved away, my father was a year and four or five months sober. Hmm. And he had been taking me to meetings. He, but he would say, I'm going to take a 30 day chip. Would you come to the meeting with me? Yes, daddy, I will. Hmm. I'm going to take a 60 day chip. Would you come to the meeting with me? Yes, I will. Now he didn't ask anyone else in the family. He only asked me, but I thought it was because I was his favorite. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I left to go to California in 1976, he got sober May of 75. Um, He gave me this plaque and I have it right over there. And it's a serenity prayer plaque. It has the praying hands on it. And then it has the serenity prayer. Mm-hmm. And on the back of it, he wrote, uh, remember, daddy, this too shall pass. And he said to me, one day you're going to know what that means. And of course, I said, uh, you know, when my dad got sober, he got good, like all of us do. And, you know, like it says in the family afterward, um, you don't want to become such a spiritual giant that you forget what your family has been through. And when the phone would ring, we would we would say, God, it's for you. <laughs> because my father had become this like spiritual giant, you know. But he gave me this plaque and he said, you know, one day you're going to know what that means. So when I called him at 15 days sober, I said, Daddy, I have 15 days sober. I've been going to meetings. And he said to me, so you know what that plaque means then, right? And I said, yeah. 15 days in. And so he was still back on the East Coast while you were on the West Coast at that time? Yeah. So how, how old were you when you made that call to him? 23. Between the ages of, let's say, whenever your dad first got sober and when you got sober, what did that period of time look like for you? Well, my father got sober when I was 19, and I was... Um, you know, and in in high school, I was very active in high school. I was a cheerleader. I was most athletic. I was captain of the softball team and the this team. And, you know, I was in plays. And But I drank on the weekends. Whenever we would go out and we'd go to a party or we'd go to a dance, I would we drank and we drank to excess. Mm. I drank to excess. I never drank to have fun. I drank to get screwed up. I was in nursing school those two years that my father's drinking was the worst. Mm. Uh, When I had to bring him to the emergency room where I worked with these people and he was such a bad drunk and he had cut himself and Mm -hmm. I had to bring him in. And, you know, this is my dad, my, he's screaming. He's, you know, just like the alcoholic. And, and I was in nursing school. We were in our last semester And we were studying the social diseases. The social diseases back then were gonorrhea, syphilis, and alcoholism. Yeah. And they brought someone in from AA to speak. And I'd never heard of AA and didn't know anything about AA. Mm -hmm. But I knew my father was an alcoholic Yeah. um, from the time I was four or five. And I went up to this guy after the meeting, and I can... I can picture it like it was yesterday Mm. and so clearly. And I went up to him and I said, can I have some of these pamphlets? My father's a bad alcoholic. Now I was doing a lot of drugs, Mm -hmm. drinking a lot, and I was having consequences. I would, I would be brought home. I remember one time I 
I made the paper in Paramus, New Jersey. I hit the curb, tore up 20 feet of lawn and killed three garbage cans. <laughs> and the police, when the police stopped me, um, I'd had a flat tire and they said, what happened? And I said, well, I had a flat tire and it just went out of control. And, but I was drunk and, but my brother was a policeman in the town next door. And I said, you know, my brother's a policeman in New Milford, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, we'll take you home. And so they took me home and, you know, I was grounded and I couldn't drive only to school and back and blah, blah, blah. But what happened that night when I got these pamphlets, mm -hmm. I thought, I'm going to go home and bring these to my dad. At the same time, my father is on a bus coming home from New York City because he worked in the city. And he runs into a friend of his, Pat, who became his first sponsor. And Pat looked at him and my father looked terrible. And Pat said to him, Bill, are you, are you ready? And my father said, yes. And so when I got home with my little pamphlets, I came in the front door and there were about three or four guys sitting around the kitchen table. 12-stepping my father into Alcoholics Anonymous. What a what a God moment. I don't even know if I gave him those pamphlets because my mother said to me, these guys are here to help daddy. And can you go study at your friend's house, which is around the block? I said, yeah. But my father started going to AA at this point. Hmm. And, um, you know, he had a sponsor and, you know, he eventually died with 32 years of sobriety. Mm -hmm. The line was around the block. Yeah, I can imagine. For people to thank him because he helped so many people. And he he was of service at 33 days of sobriety. He was of service. He, you know, um, he was always really active in northern New Jersey. Alcoholism. So his drinking, his active alcoholism and your active alcoholism overlapped for what, about four years, was it? Yeah. I mean, I, he got sober when I was 19 uh -huh. and I came in when I was 23. And during that, his first year, he would ask me to come to meetings with him because he was going to take a 30 day or 60 day and 90 day. They pin you at 90 days. So I have my dad's pin. He gave that to me. And, um, mm -hmm. and then at six months, he ended up speaking at a meeting and he made amends to me from the podium. He talked about this one episode where he slapped me across the face and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, uh, but I remember he, he, you know, at some of the meetings that he would ask me to go to, he already had a commitment. He used to pick up these priests from a local sober living where the priests would go. Mm -hmm. And so I would be sitting in the back seat with Father Tom and Father Joe, <laughs> and everyone was old, like they seemed older to me. Now they could yeah. have been in their 40s. My father was in his 40s. Uh -huh. yeah, my father was 45. Everyone seemed old and, you know, it just seemed serious. And, you know, it, it was not an attraction to me. I'm curious, as you were sitting there processing your dad in these meetings where he was getting his medallion for 30, 60, 90 days, getting pinned, when he's in front of the room of people essentially making amends to you from the podium, what were you thinking about your own use of alcohol and drinking at that time? Did you see yourself on a different plane than he was on, and that's why he was there and you didn't have to be there? What was your thinking at that time? Oh, yeah, I didn't relate at all. Um, he was the problem. Hmm. And his drinking was the problem. Um, I just was partying. That was that was me. I was just partying. 
So I didn't relate mm. uh, because, you know, back then, a lot of the people were really low bottom drunks, mm. low bottom alcoholics. It wasn't until the mid to late 70s and 80s that people started coming in younger uh, and also uh, uh, co-addicted. Sure. Drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. And so and that's I think, you know, I hit more of a bottom quicker because of drugs. I've heard that over the years myself and the years I've been around AA and certainly in doing these interviews, and that's a very common refrain for people. Uh, One of the guys I had who said that drugs just accelerated his journey to the bottom. He probably would have been an alcoholic, an active alcoholic for many more years Mm -hmm. than he actually was because of the drugs that took him down so, so quickly. You mentioned earlier about drinking, smoking marijuana to get screwed up. And I think a lot of us drank and used drugs for that reason. What kind of feeling or mindset were you chasing when you were drinking and using drugs? Well, I will tell you, my first alcoholic experience was when I was 13. And I went to a, what they call the block dance. And it was during the summer, 69. And my girlfriends stole alcohol. Someone stole two beers. Someone stole a, a skippy jar filled with the, you know, um, whiskey uh, I couldn't steal anything because my mother wouldn't let my father keep any alcohol in the house. Plus, if there was any alcohol, he would drink it all. So uh, we didn't keep a lot of, you know, alcohol in the house. There was so much shame, you know, shame about my family, uh-huh. shame about everything. But I remember drinking that night and I hit that perfect place of feeling good, not totally drunk and fucked up, as I would say. Uh-huh. And not not there, but just there. I mean, I felt happy and I felt a part of and I I I felt confident and I started talking to, you know, this guy who was sort of like a semi boyfriend and and he drove me. He walked me home from the dance. And I remember like I just felt so happy. And, And that's what I chased. But I don't think I ever got that place again because. I always overshot the mark and I always got to the point where I would pass out or black out or throw up or um, I just over overdid it. I just, you know, wanted to be I mean, my girlfriends and I, we used to talk about like, let's just get fucked up tonight. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, they're not alcoholics. Yeah, I, I'm still friends with them, but they're not alcoholics. Yeah, I had friends like that too. That the idea was let's get together and get stoned and uh, eat Cheetos and watch, uh, you know, reruns of I Love Lucy or something like that, or go out and go to the bars and see what we could uh, what we could accomplish there. It sometimes there was a frustration though that whenever I went too far and went past the point at which had I just stopped there, things would have been nice and smooth and enjoyable. Did you experience that? I did, yeah. And my friends would get very frustrated with me because I was the person who would black out, would throw up, that they would have to take care of. But the next morning, I just forgot about that. I mean, I would feel physically sick, Mm -hmm. um, but I just never felt like, oh, I shouldn't do that again. Yeah. No, I, I felt, well, I probably shouldn't drink vodka anymore because I 
I started blacking out with vodka and then I got to the point where I could have one or two drinks of vodka and I and I was in a blackout. Did you black out every time you drank over the years that you were an active alcoholic? No. So you had the opportunity to remember what you did the night before. So so you were you were drinking until you were 23 and were yeah. you were you on the verge of getting out of a nursing school by that time or had you already gone out onto your career path? Well, I started in when I was 17 in nursing school and I finished when I was uh, 20 and I worked for a year in New Jersey and I remember when I got the job I wanted to get a daytime job so that I could go party at night and be with my friends and and I ended up getting an evening job mm-hmm. from 3 to 11. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, maybe that's good. Maybe I won't drink so much. Maybe I won't go out and, and you know, drink and party so much. And even when I was in nursing school, a lot of my friends went away to school. And I remember thinking, I'm glad I, I, I'm not going away because I, I would be drunk every night. Mm. At least I, I had some control because I was living at home. And even though my father was drinking, everyone was concentrating on my father. They didn't look at me so much. And um, but when I was 20, uh, almost 21, I moved out to California. I thought, you know, if I could just get away, I had just gone cross country the summer of 76 Mm -hmm. for five weeks with my girlfriend. And we went we camped out every night and we went everywhere. And um, and I decided I'm going to move to California. Why? I don't know, but I'm going to move. And I moved to California in September and I had just crashed my car in August. Now who moves to Los Angeles without a car? (laughs) I drove a friend of mine that I went to high school with. She was in California and she decided she was going to stay. So she said to me, can you drive my, since you're coming out, can you drive my car since you don't have a car? Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, okay. And I just came out and drove her car up to her and then took the bus back and stayed with a friend here. And and then the darkness started. Hmm. I mean, I was, you know, 30 pounds overweight uh, on speed. You know, I'd gone to different doctors to get diet pills. And um, I always say I was the fattest speed freak I I. Uh, my, I was losing my hair so much. and So you were keeping the weight on, even though you were taking the amphetamines. It stopped working. It worked for a little bit, but then it stopped. Did the alcohol help with it, or did it, it, did it totally screw up whatever you were trying to accomplish with the pills? Well, the pills worked for a little uh-huh. bit, and then they stopped. It was almost like, okay, these aren't working. I'm just going to continue binging and vomiting and, you know, Drinking, you know, going to the local store and getting a gallon of Den White Chablis and drinking every, drinking myself to sleep every night. And the funny thing is, when I moved to California, I would call my father frequently. I was very close with my father. I wasn't with my mother. Mm-hmm. I mean, I loved my mom, but she was, she was a typical Al-Anon. I would call my dad in the evening. So, and I would call him when I knew my mother couldn't answer the phone. And so so it had to be like 12 or one in the morning because he, if anyone called, he was the one who picked it up at that point. And he would talk to me and, and you know, I was, I'm so depressed. I hate it out here. I don't know why I moved. I don't know what I'm doing. 
And my dad just said, you know, you're there, just stay there and try and make a life for yourself. And and then he would go on and say, you know, I picked up a little newcomer, Pat, and I took him to a meeting and, and uh, he's doing really well. And I thought to myself, he's always talking about himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Why is he talking to me about this, you know? And, uh, but he would always talk, you know, I went to a meeting the other night and God, I really felt good after. And, and he would just talk to me about AA. He never said to me, you're an alcoholic, but he knew I was an alcoholic. Later on in your recovery, when you and you and your dad were able to get back together, did he ever give you an idea of what he was thinking as he was saying that to you in the earlier years? Well, he kept thinking that if he could just carry the message to me. He knew he couldn't carry the alcoholic, but if he could just tell me how AA has helped him, maybe I might, because telling me that I'm an alcoholic was not going to help me. I I was just going to be more defensive and, yeah, defiant is the word. Mm -hmm. But he he used to say, uh, you know, the only thing I could do is is carry the message to you and let you know how AA has changed my life. Mm. And that's why I didn't say anything to you about how AA could change your life. Could that have helped me at that point? Possibly. But I was partying. And then uh, I moved out in September. My best friend moved out in June. And uh, she's not an alcoholic. She's still out here. Uh, But she's a party girl. Uh, And then a bunch of people from my hometown, from New Jersey, moved out. Everything I tried to run away from Mm -hmm. ended up out here. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the big book podcast on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. So that geographic cure didn't really work very well, did it? (laughs) No, no. And all my Bergenfield friends were out here. I ended up rooming with my girlfriend, so therefore I had no control over who could come in and who could stay overnight. And my, my life was so out of control. I, I just wanted to try and control it, but um, I couldn't. Uh, I was still working. Uh, I was working per diem. Mm-hmm. I, I remember I worked for about a year at UCLA on the orthopedic floor, but they, they kept sticking me. I didn't know how to stick up for myself, mm-hmm. and they kept sticking me on nights because I was young and because I was new. Finally, I just said, you know, I, I'm, I just can't work nights anymore but it was during that time i had a crush on one of the uh, interns Mm -hmm. and we were at an orthopedic party at one of the dorms and i guess i thought i was errol flynn or something but i was on a balcony on the second floor and i got i got over the balcony railing and i called to him kevin and it was such a good looking guy and i said kevin catch me and all these orthopedic doctors looked at me like, no. <laughs> anyway, they, they brought me over the railing. Uh, but I just remember that next morning going into work mm. and thinking, 
I can't believe, no, no one said anything to me, but then I found a, a nurse friend. This is my, that last year. We would go out after uh, my three to 11 mm -hmm. shift and we would go to this place in Santa Monica called the Ore House. Now, if anyone is a drunk and gets sober, mm -hmm. they into the Ore House. Okay. Yeah. And it's not Whore House, it's O-A-R, Ore House, right by the beach. It was the alcoholic paradise. I, I would get beer spilled oh. on me. And and I, I remember that was the last year. I remember thinking the girl I was with had a problem with alcohol. Uh huh. And then I remember thinking, wow, why are you going here? But that, that left me, like, really quickly. So you were going there during the days because you couldn't go out at night, and you were going there with your friend who you thought she was the alcoholic and not you. What finally brought you to the realization that you were an alcoholic, and what did the entree into AA look like for you? Well, I think it started piecemeal, and it didn't even start with the drunk driving arrest in October. Mm -hmm. It started with that... Monday night, going home, pouring my alma demoshipli, lying my joint. And then the words came out of my mouth, instead of fruit, can I have alcohol? Wow. And then she said, why don't you go to AA, meet me tomorrow? And I just said, yes. I honestly think the grace of God, and I had been praying to God. I'd been reading the Bible. I'd been praying to God, please help me. I, I always think of Chuck C., you know, when I talk about this, because he always said that towards the end, he felt like a failure. He was a failure at life. Mm -hmm. And that's how I felt. I was a failure at life. And I went to that meeting and I identified. And that's why people telling their stories is so important. Not quoting the big book, not giving advice. It's one drunk talking to another. It's telling our stories and being able to identify wow, I think I may be one of you. Did you feel that way from the beginning, from the first meeting on, or was there a period of time where you were identifying more with the differences than the similarities, or had you finally resigned yourself to the fact that you need to be going to AA? Well, I knew I needed to be going to AA and OA. I knew that there was a problem with me. I didn't know what the problem was. And I, when I talked with my dad when I was 15 days sober on the phone, I said to him, Daddy, I'm not sure if I'm an alcoholic, but I've been going to meetings every night. And he said, you know, honey, you don't have to know if you're an alcoholic. Just know that your father's an alcoholic. Your grandparents were alcoholic. Um, your grandmother wanted to be buried with a pint of whiskey. Your uncle is an alcoholic on Skid Row. Your other uncle is in a mental institution. So this alcoholism runs in the family and he said and you may have it you know you may not be coming in as late as i did but you don't have to wait that long and that's when i remember reading the book about how some of us were just potential alcoholics and we didn't have to take the elevator all the way down that we could stop there but the longer i'm sober the more, like I used to think, well, I was a potential alcoholic. No, I was an alcoholic. And the longer I'm sober, the more was has been revealed to me about my alcoholism and drugs and all of that. But it took me about nine months to really fully concede to my innermost self. 
I got a sponsor, but she only had a month more than me. So mm-hmm. it didn't make any sense. We were two people that developed crushes on two different guys and we followed them around. And I'm grateful that that Jerry had three years, my crush, because he went to meetings like eight meetings a week. And so I just followed him. But I remember going back east when I was three months sober and I went to meetings with my dad. And I remember going out with my girlfriends in the city and they said to me, so you're never going to drink ever? Hmm. And I said, well, not right now. Hmm. And but I just kept coming. I kept relating. I kept identifying and I felt better coming to the meetings. And when I was 30 days sober, um, I worked evenings, so there was um, a meeting, and not many people attended, but they needed someone to be secretary. Mm-hmm. And they said, why don't you be? I said, well, I only have 30 days. That's okay. And it was a um, big book study and 12 and 12 study. And that's how I got to know the big book the first year, is by going to this big book study and reading from the 12 and 12. But when I had nine months sober, I had a friend come out to visit me, and we went traveling and i was still going to meetings Mm -hmm. but we went traveling for about a week and during that time i never went to a meeting and i was never in contact with anyone and not accountable to anyone and during that time she said you know let's go to some of these wineries and i was so uncomfortable but i didn't know how to take care of myself i didn't know like if i had talked with an old timer they would have said no you're not going to a winery you have no business in a winery um but i went um with my girlfriend and i as she was doing her thing in the winery i sat there and i went through four packs of gum and she said to me what's the matter with you (laughs) (laughs) i said i said i feel really uncomfortable i don't think i should be here and anyway when i got back she had left and i ended up at a meeting on a friday it was a women's meeting and there was this woman, Mary M, mm-hmm. sober now and in the group, and and she was speaking, and she was Irish. She looked like my mother, and I said, can you be my sponsor? And that's when I really started to work the steps, be accountable to someone, stay in touch with the sponsor, learn that I needed a home group, mm-hmm. and that I needed to show up for a home group, and I needed a commitment at a home group, and that you know, at one year, I should start uh, doing work at hospitals and Mm -hmm. institutions, which I did. And I remember going downtown, I had this panel for about 17 years, and it was skid row. And, And I remember saying to Mary, I don't identify with these people. And she said, you know, it doesn't matter. You are just bringing the message of alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous to them, you're bringing the message of hope, you're sharing your experience. And, you know, we used to have to bring people to speak, uh, bring a couple of speakers with us. Um, and and also during this time, whenever I would go back east, my first thing my sponsor said to me is, when you go somewhere and you travel, the first thing you do is you call Alcoholics Anonymous Northern New Jersey. And you get in touch with someone and you you find out where a meeting is. That's that's your first connection when you when you land. Even though my father was sober, 
Um, but at the time, I wanted my own sobriety. I didn't want to, because my father is blustery mm-hmm. and, you know, he's got a big personality. And But, you know, she taught me a lot. She taught me the basics of AA. She, I, she was my sponsor for about um, three years. And that's when I got my sponsor, Kathleen, who's my sponsor today. Hmm. And I went through the steps again with Kathleen. I went, I, you know, because still at that point, I thought, well, maybe I was too young. Maybe, I'm, <laughs> maybe I was young. And so, you know, we, we did a first step again. We did step one again. You know, I wrote down my drinking and alcohol drug addicted uh, history. And she was, no, no, you're an alcoholic. <laughs> Isn't it funny how even after three years of working with a woman who you know, had a really strong foundation in AA, that after three years of that kind of sobriety, you'd still think, well, maybe maybe I'm a little bit too young for this, or maybe I, maybe I could go and have a drink or something like that. Doesn't that sound crazy to you? Oh, it does. And, and that's the thing. I, I always say, we alcoholics are the last to know that we are alcoholics. And that's why I used to go to this meeting. They have a AA countdown, you know, who has one year, you know, one year stands up, who has, you know, three years, five years. And I remember this guy saying to me, now look after five years, who has five years, who has 10 years, see how many people are standing. Now look and see how many people are standing at 15 and 20. I think I could easily have talked myself out of Alcoholics Anonymous because that's our alcoholism. Our alcoholism says we're not an alcoholic. We don't have a problem. Oh, you know, I think maybe, you know, we use all of these excuses. For me, they were excuses. You know, once I was able to do the steps again, I wouldn't have lasted alone out there. I I couldn't do life by myself without AA yeah I or or anything I had to learn the basics I had to learn to show up uh on time at work I was there to be of service that um uh, my my sponsor Kathleen was very close with Chuck C and she said we're we're drunks helping drunks we're we're one of God's kids and we're here to help God's kids and then she taught me you need to go and get your teeth cleaned when was the last time you did your teeth and I had crooked teeth, and I said, you know, I always wanted braces. You can have braces. Go find out how bra- basic things like that. Like, oh my God, I I just got a ticket because I ran a red light. Well, we don't <laughs> run red light. What red lights here? We stop at stop signs too. And I had to learn to be accountable in my car. Yeah. Because I was, I'm still struggled with alcoholic emotions, and it came out in my car, uh, at my job. Um, during this time when I was about a year sober, I went to therapy and the therapist I had, it was a group therapy and she was about 30 years sober at the time. So the therapy that we had was all based, like she would say to me, I think you need to start working on six and seven here. It was all based on the program. It was when I was one year sober. And, and this is where I love this part in, I think it's we agnostics where it says attendance at a few meetings and reading a little bit of the big book is a far cry from purposeful and contented yeah. sobriety. This is the difference that Clancy talks about that, you know, people that are just heavy drinkers can come in and they stop drinking. 
but their life doesn't fall apart. We alcoholics, we come in and that's when our life starts to fall apart because we, we have to deal with things that we never dealt with because we yeah. drank over them. But I was in therapy with her for five years and I, I tell you, she taught me so much. That first five years then became uh, an incredible foundation for what's been for almost four and a half decades of, of sobriety. And that's a long time. And But that's when most of the stuff happens that were you not sober, you wouldn't get through. Or the great gifts are given, which you wouldn't have experienced had you not stayed sober. I wanted to ask you about some of those things. What were some of the main milestones during your uh, 43 years of sobriety that you could look back on and say, yeah, that was the program at work for me. That was God at work for me. Do you have some of these things that stick out in your mind? Yeah. Um, well, one, my first seven years, I was really active. I had an H&I panel. I, What's H&I? Hospital and Institution. I was part of a home group that we used to have um, Christmas shows and so we used to put on Christmas shows and for, for alcoholics. And that started when I was uh, two years sober. And I thank God because I remember my first year, I went back right before I, was tur I turned one. I went back for Christmas, which is, was not a good move. And I learned that don't be around your family at Christmas time. One, my father is out at meetings. My mother hates him because he's at meetings. So she didn't support him in his in his program, did she? At first, but then, you know, she didn't want to live in AA meetings. And my father had to. He had to live in AA meetings. And But then you go back and you really see the sickness of alcoholism. And I remember thinking to myself, I will never go back to Christmas again. And I never did. Never did. I would always go back at Thanksgiving. I remember thinking I had to keep my my visits mm -hmm. short, um, but I also had to do a major work on my relationship with my mother because my mother, the relationship was so mm -hmm. not great. I mean, I, I, you know, I loved her, uh, but I resented her and she was the problem. Not my father and not his drinking it was my mother. If she was, if she wasn't the way she was, my father wouldn't have drank so much. And that's the craziness. Families can become those triggers, especially early on in sobriety. I always tell guys I sponsor, you know, make sure you have your own car wherever you go. Make sure you have an exit strategy. Make sure you've got a meeting in the location where you're going to be able to go to and make mm -hmm. sure you call me every day while you're there. And most of them have gotten through those family things, although I've, it's tough to watch. Well, that's the thing. I had to limit how much time I spent with them. But also the big thing that was hard for me is I was 23 years old. I was young. And all my friends, my Jersey friends, still drank and smoked and did drugs. It was hard. I would go back and I, would, I wanted to see my friends uh, so much. And, you know, sometimes I remember going to one party and my friend said, what are you drinking? chamomile tea <laughs> <laughs> but i had to limit the time that i could spend which made me feel very alienated from the love that i had with these people um but i had to limit the time and i went on a date and i was about a year sober and when i came home we opened the front door and my my roommate's brother was in the living room 
snorting coke from the table. And the date that I had looked at me and he said, you have no business mm-hmm. being here. So that was a big thing. And then I talked with my sponsor. Yeah, you have to move. You can't be in a place like that. So I had to move. So and that was a big thing to separate myself from my friends a little bit. That was really hard. Yeah, really hard. But I also realized that the people that heard me as a person and listened to me and loved me unconditionally with the people in the program. Mm -hmm. And I had to develop a family. And that part of that family was my home group, where we used to say where the debris meets the (laughs) sea. Our motto was work the steps or die motherfuckers. (laughs) Sorry, I hate hate to curse, but that was our motto. But I did go a little crazy when I was seven years sober. I did. I fired Mm -hmm. my sponsor because I wasn't getting Mm. well. And I got back into my eating disorder for a year and I went through a difficult time and and depressed. And I went through that dark night of the soul that a lot of people go through in AA Mm -hmm. where we either drink or we we find the light. You know, I I started back in therapy and I got myself uh, another sponsor. And also at that time, I remember like I went to meetings and I would say, is this all there is? I remember talking to my dad and he said, you know, Pat, AA is a bridge back to life. We don't have to live in AA all the time. You're young. Get out there. And I remember talking to my sponsor about it. And she said, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, I've always wanted to go to Europe. I've always wanted to go to Ireland and see my family. And she said, well, why don't you? And I said, well, because I'm depressed. And she said, well, you may be depressed the rest of your life. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you can't let that stop you. And she said, so let's take, let's, let's get your, get your passport. Uh, let's do this. And I just took these baby steps. And I mean, I was scared the whole time I did this, but I ended up going to Europe for five weeks. I went to Germany. I had cousins that were staying there and teaching. So I had people there that I knew. Um, I had a doctor that I worked with. He went back to Yugoslavia to with his family so I got to stay with his family Mm. in Yugoslavia but I got to go to meetings everywhere I went because I learned the minute I touch down I make a call hi Munich uh, where's your meetings and I got to meet people in Rome at meetings and and um and then I ended up going to Ireland um and it just so happened that um my father's side of the family was having Mm -hmm. a reunion And by then I was 10, 11 years sober and being around people that drank didn't bother me. I could, I could enjoy myself. And because I, I sort of knew who I was more and I felt comfortable and, and believe me, there was a lot of drinking, but there was also one girl who came who said she left treatment early so she could come. So it just reminded me that alcoholism runs deep in my, my Irish family. I was scared the whole time and I also had lost sort of contact with God, but I, I kept doing the things that I learned Mm -hmm. early on, which was I read my little spiritual books in the morning and I asked God to help me through the day. Uh, And I learned that from my dad. My dad used to say, when you get up, you just say, please, God, God, God knows the rest. And at night you just say, thank you. But, but I will say, when I was five years sober, 
there was a woman who had 15 years. She had taken a 15-year cake. And I remember saying to her, I, Cindy, I can't believe 15 years. How do you feel about your character defects? <laughs> and she said, you know, I just feel a lot more comfortable with them. <laughs> they're not they're not gone. I just feel a lot more comfortable. And I remember thinking, wow, because for my whole sobriety until maybe 15 years, oh, yeah. I used to beat myself up all the time for little things. You know, if I said something wrong at an AA meeting or if I didn't give the best pitch or, and when I was 15 years sober, I re I finally realized, wow, that is self-obsession. And that yeah. is alcoholism. Now, during this time, I was also going to Al-Anon and I've gone to Al-Anon my whole sobriety on and off. But it was during this time that I, between 10 and 20 years that it all seemed to come together and I felt okay being me. It took a long time. A lot of people wondered whether and when that's going to happen. And I think one of the, the difficulties that I've experienced within that period of time is that we claim spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection. But yet, as we're moving along in our sobriety, that part of me that still wants to do everything perfectly applies to the program, too. And the minute I don't do something perfectly, if I don't say the right thing to the guy's sponsor, or if I don't say the right thing in the, the minute I find my, myself thinking about what I've said in a meeting and worrying that I said the wrong thing, I'm on that path towards wanting perfection, and anything less makes me upset or bums me out. And so I, I, I get what you're talking about there. Mm -hmm. So this is all a, a spiritual journey for you between 10 and 20 years. Well, and, and during this whole time, I stopped going to Catholic Church and I started going to Unity um, Church. And I, I was introduced to my daily word, which I've had for 43 years. Uh, and I read. And um, my at one year, Mary M. gave me Emmett Fox. Mary had told me, you start reading these spiritual books because this is a spiritual program. And she gave me Around the World with Emmett Fox. And it's a daily thing of Emmett Fox and got a guru. I started, you know, I used to go he listen to Krishnamurti. I, I, I used to go listen to Ram Dass. And I, I just went and did all these things because I knew that it was a spiritual, it was God as I understand God that was going to help me get through. And it was during 10 to 20 that I realized also that this perfection yeah. of what I think I should do is so connected with the third step. If I've turned my will and my life over to God, then what I'm saying today is God inspired. It, it, it's not me. And if I turn my will and my life over to God, then I was supposed to have 17 years with mm. the love of my life. And and then he passed and, and things happened. And I had to sell my house this past year. I've been on crutches for two and a half years. Um, it's not been easy, mm -hmm. but the things that I learned early on, take care of your alcoholism and everything else will take care of itself. So that when I'm in a difficult headspace i remember that mm -hmm. and that means using these spiritual tools that i didn't know were spiritual tools i just thought that they were call another yeah. person go to a meeting say a prayer read the big book 
I was talking to a, a girl I sponsor and she was really having a hard time this week. And I was telling her how when I sold my home of 23 years that I shared with my late husband and I said, I, it was so difficult. Mm. And I said to her, I had yeah. to use every tool in the toolbox. I was calling my sponsor sponsor. I just yeah. had to do whatever I could. I had to pray like I'd never prayed before. And the thing that I learned also between 10 and 20, there are times in our sobriety when we have to recommit ourselves to this program. Yeah, I believe that. So like when I was, you know, 11 years sober and I'm I just like, oh, I'm so tired of listening to these people and uh, I can't stand this meeting. I remember thinking to myself, you put your ass on your hands and you sit in that seat and you just listen until you start to feel like you want to be here and, and get a commitment at the meeting, which I did. Isn't it amazing? You, you knew what to do because you were hanging around the middle of the program. I think what happens over the years is that we we stay involved in the middle of the program. We know that's where we need to be. But sometimes we start backing away from the middle, but we're going to enough meetings and working the program hard enough to know we better tie off a rope in the middle there as we're backing up so that we can pull ourselves back in. I've seen too many people start to take their sobriety for granted. Like, oh, you know, I don't like this meeting, but it's okay that I don't go because I go to X number of meetings and then there's another meeting they feel that way in. And before long... They're going to one or two meetings a week, and I have to ask them, what was there that you were telling me about the importance mm. of going to four meetings a week that still applies to you only going to two meetings a week? Well, and I think also for me, and I learned this early on, too, from some of my spiritual giant women that had time when I was new, because I found right. that I would maybe not go to that meeting, maybe not go to the when I didn't feel good, when I felt like I'm fucked up, my world is falling apart, I'm 16 years sober, oh my, I'm depressed, what am I gonna do, blah, 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 blah. Um, and it's at those times that we need to show up. And that's hard for us alcoholics, but uh, he, I have to always think of, I can't save my ass and my, my face <laughs> at the same time. I have to show up and I have to tell people when things are hard because they need to hear that we all still struggle. This one guy, Mike, he used to say, we never rise above being human. That's such a powerful way to think, too, that when things are going badly, we need to be in meetings to be the example of how to get through things going badly and stay sober. The flip side of that is also true, isn't it, where I better be going to meetings when things are going very, very well to show people that if I stay sober, I can live a life in which things go well. I think what I've noticed over the years is more people slip when things are going really well for them. Uh, you know, they start thinking they're running the show again, and suddenly their lives become so important and busy that their sobriety slips down a few pegs. And then it's not long before they're going to one meeting a month or hardly going at all. And they're moving further and further towards the edge of the cliff. But the ground still feels solid under their feet, but they're moving away from the herd. So when I hear you say about redoubling when tragic things, and I'm sorry to hear about the loss of, of your, your husband uh, at that time, but the fact that you got through it Man, what an incredible gift to the people who were there to share those meetings with you. Well, and, and the, you know, when I I met my husband, I, I recommitted when I was about 11 years mm -hmm. sober. 
all my friends that were part of my home group in my first 10 years, a lot mm-hmm. of them had moved. So the meeting was totally different and I didn't feel comfortable. And I thought, I need to find a new home group. Uh-huh. And so yeah. I started going to uh-huh. this meeting up in the Palisades and, you know, I became a greeter because that's what you do. You get a commitment. And then I, you know, did literature and then I did the coffee mm. or this and that. And eventually when I was 19 years sober, I was secretary. It was a year of commitment. And I had my dad come out to give the last talk. And um, my dad gave the last talk and, and I had just turned 20 years sober. And uh, we, he, we, you know, I, I did a party. There were about, you know, 100 people there. And my dad was there and, and it just was so good. And I remember running into my old sponsor, Kathleen, and, and she used to say to me, you know, Patrice, you are so serious. You have a hard time having fun. Mm-hmm. And when I was 20 years sober, dancing at my 20th birthday party with Kathleen, and I said, you know, Kath, I know how to have fun. I know how to feel it. I don't have to act as if I'm having fun. I can feel that. And, um, and but that's when I met my husband. I asked him to speak. I saw him at a meeting, and I asked him to speak. And I had never had a long relationship. So for people that are out there that, you know, you have dreams and you want to meet someone, you want to get married, you want to have children, you want to do things, you know, between 10 and 20 years of sobriety, I, well, I'm never going to meet someone. Mm. And my sponsor would always say, continue trying to be the person that you would like to meet. Continue trying to better yourself so that when it's time, you will meet the right person. And that's what I did. I met the right person. He was in the program and he started a meeting uh, at his bedside when he had a liver transplant back in 1991. But we met in 98 and we got married in 2000. And my father and him became really good friends. He used to say, uh, your dad's my sponsor now. And I would say, oh, okay. But we would, our favorite thing to do was to go back uh, two, three, four times a year and just spend four days there and take you take my dad to meetings because by then he was in a wheelchair and yeah even then even in a wheelchair he had a big book study in his house and he would wheel himself back and fix the coffee and then wheel himself forward and he knew the service and working the steps were the things that keep us going god that's beautiful you know just to to hear that reaffirmation of staying sober till the end and how important that can be to the people around you and what an impact it can have. I I had the opportunity to be amongst a small group of men who were doing bedside meetings for a good friend of ours who died of of liver cancer. And, uh, you know, he was one of those guys from the 60s who got the hepatitis, who uh, was a heroin user, but he was also sober close to 40 years when he got when, when he died. But those meetings were so powerful because we saw a man on his way out still clinging to the importance of staying sober. And nobody would have given him a drink then if he wanted it. But it was just that commitment that went right up to his final days. It was a beautiful thing to behold. Well, we had an AA house. He used to have a meeting a men's meeting in the back um, on Sunday nights. And then the meeting that he started at his bedside um, still went on. It's going to be, he had his liver transplant April 17th. So it'll be anyway, 91 to 2022. So that's 31 years. 
you know, I, ha- I always wanted to have children. And that in mm-hmm. my 30s, that was hard because I just would cry to my sponsor. I'm never going to meet anyone. I'm never going to have kids. And, you know, I was never able to, ha- you know, I didn't meet the right person till I was 42. And at that point, I didn't want to have children mm. at that age. And he had children and I had grandchildren. And I'm very close with my my daughter, my stepdaughter. Uh, and I'm very close yeah, with beautiful. my grandson, one of my grandsons. And and so I may not have gotten what I want, but I did get what I needed. And those are incredibly God-given and God-identified gifts, aren't they? That that I can see God at work yeah. in my life as I look around at, at just about everything, including things like what you're saying. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps just as you're talking about the grandkids and tying it all back to that point at which you knew that you needed some help and that you couldn't do it by yourself. I mean, that's what this whole thing is about, isn't it? Well, and I look back over my life, and I honestly, the thing that's, that comes to mind is God has done for me what I could never do for myself. Never. Not without the program, not without a sponsor, not without going to meetings, not without uh, getting on my knees, not without spiritual. I mean, when when my husband died, people picked me up and took me to meetings. Mm -hmm. My AA friends brought me food. I and I remember at six months saying to my sponsor, Kathleen, saying, I can't believe it. I'm like hmm. a newcomer. I'm back to meetings every day. Yeah. I was going to meetings every day. But what happened is after losing um, my husband, I had this little pamphlet that was in my dad's big book. It had the third step prayer, the seven, like sort of opened into a uh, accordion and it had the promises. And I felt so hopeless and mm. helpless, just like I did when I was new. When you become mm-hmm. one in a in a relationship, it, it's it's heartbreaking. And what I did mm-hmm. is I started reading the promises every day that I would know a new freedom and a new happiness, that I would not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it, that I would comprehend the word serenity and I would know peace no matter how far down the scale I would go. I could see how my experience could help others. Seven months after my husband passed, a dear friend of mine's husband passed. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, I don't think mm. I could go to this another service. But my next thought was, you have to go. You have to show her that mm-hmm. it's okay, that she'll survive. And two weeks after her husband died, husband of 48 years, she called me just sobbing and she said i don't know i feel mm-hmm. like a newcomer i don't know how i'm going to do this and i said dorothy why don't you read the promises mm-hmm. every day because that helped me so much to know as alcoholics and alcoholics anonymous we yeah. always need to feel that there is hope hope for the next day hope to feel better hope yeah. to just hope and and that um and that there's help and i know that that helped her Mm. to read the promises every day that's amazing because there are dark times in sobriety there are difficult times in sobriety the dark night of the soul does come back sometimes yeah it does and we have to use all those tools that we've been given yeah to help us get through that 
We do. We do. And we do. And what you've said today, and it's amazing, that's why I love doing these interviews. They're so meaningful and deep. And, and what you've just said, it just touches a part of my heart that I can really identify with because I've had those kind of tragedies that have been very difficult. And had I not cultivated the relationships that I had over the years of my involvement with AA, I don't know that I would have gotten through them. And every single thing that I was doing on a daily basis, the going to meetings, the praying, the reading the big book, the working with others, and working the steps, I don't know which of those things, had I not been doing it, I would have not made it. You know, So it's, it's amazing to hear you, you talk about such hope mm-hmm. in the face of tragedy, but such overall acknowledgement that no matter how things go, good, bad, or otherwise, that we can stay sober, we can stay happy and content. Sounds to me like you're that happy, content person today, even though you've got your challenges. Am I right? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. You know, You know, they always used to say to be able to live with unresolved problems in Alcoholics Anonymous is the challenge for us alcoholics. And it's the challenge for me. But the minute, I mean, I, I've been on crutches for two and a half years, and um, the minute the pandemic hit, my friend and I started these women's meetings. So even though I was on crutches, I had to have surgery, I was in pain, I needed a nurse. A nurse needs a nurse. Go figure. I was busy. <laughs> I had to get speakers. <laughs> I had to get leaders. Well, you've gotten some great ones for the meetings that you and I go to together. Uh, I know that, that you and Frank have many, many years of knowing many, many people. And yeah. I will say that people you, you got for that particular meeting have just been brilliant in their shares. And I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank you for doing this interview today. You're welcome. This is just, it's, I feel like I've gotten to know you in a way that listening to three to five minute shares, it would take me a long, long time. And you're a beautiful person and I love you. And you're, this has made my whole day. I want to, uh, I want to thank you for for doing this and all the things that you said about the way you worked your program, I think are going to be very important for whoever listens to this. And people are listening to these podcasts all over the world. I don't know when your message is going to touch somebody or in what way, but I'm pretty certain that it will. Thanks so much, Patrice. Thank you, Howard. I'm so glad we had a chance to do this today. Me too. Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Patrice T., for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And also, leave a review and rating for the show on your podcast app. That'll help others find us. As the number of worldwide listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more people. Of course, you can listen to any or all of my other 70-plus interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.